this morning that we have a king who reigns and no virus can dethrone him. And that is our hope. Lord, may we see that hope even more this morning in our text. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In May of 2005, writer and university professor David Foster Wallace delivered a commencement address at Kenyon College that many people consider to be the greatest commencement address of all time. And I might add, one of the great diagnoses of the human condition that you'll ever hear. Wallace, for example, says in this speech, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your intellect, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration. That's the fruit. And worship of self. And worship of self. Well, I believe that Wallace nails it. He has rightly diagnosed our default setting of being worshipers of self. Wallace had the right diagnosis. I only wish he had the right remedy. And he didn't. He clearly believed, as the speech says, that all you have to do is worship any sort of God or any spiritual thing. That would do for him. Anything else would eat you alive, as long as you worship something in the spiritual. Second reason I don't believe that he had the right remedy was that 40 months after his speech, Wallace hung himself. He committed suicide. Clearly, eaten alive by the things he had worshipped 
unconsciously. Texts like David's prayer here in 2 Samuel 7, 18 to 29, are part of the remedy. They're part of the cure. Texts like these are intended by the Spirit who inspired these texts to intercept our default setting of self-worship. That's what he got right. That's the default setting of the human condition. Texts like these are intended by the Spirit to redirect our hearts back to the one who made us worshipers in the first place. Texts like these are intended to rescue our awe. The Word of God is on a rescue mission. We need to understand that, lest we have closed Bibles. And David was certainly in awe, coming off the promises that we know as the Davidic covenant that had been made with him. And the first thing we see in this prayer is a response of praise of what the Lord had done. Verses 18 to 24. Look with me in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. That coming off the hills of verse 16. Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God's promise to David. So he goes in and he says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now this is a rhetorical question, clearly, from David. But David, by asking this question, it's a question that hopefully we've all asked at some point. He's acknowledging that all that he is is the product of sovereign grace, of divine enablement not human accomplishment. And David's awe is evident by his enthrallment with the, the covenant name, the name that God had given Moses in Exodus 3. When Moses asked God, what is your name? In asking that question, he was asking, what kind of God are you? And he says, my name is the Lord, Yahweh. This is my name forever. This is the name by which I want to be known throughout all generations. And David is enthralled with that name. We see that name in some form 11 times in this prayer. He can't get over the name. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, in his work, Man's Chief End to Glorify God, explains that glorifying God can be summarized by four terms. First of all, appreciation. Setting your thoughts on God. A person who appreciates God goes through life with his mind set on this God. Adoration. To worship God according to the pattern prescribed in Scripture. Adoration. Third, affection. 
to love God with a delight as a person's heart is set on his highest treasure. And then fourth, subjection. To dedicate ourselves to God in his service in light of your adoration of him with what Watson calls golden obedience. I love that. We see all of these at the very beginning of David's prayer. And his prayer begins right out of the gates, not with request. That's how we tend to begin our prayers, isn't it? We just come out with requests, and that's okay. There are psalms that begin with request. It's not always wrong to begin with request. But you see here, he begins with wonder. He begins with praise, adoration. Del Ralph Davis says that Bethlehem, where David was first approached by God through Samuel, was in 1 Samuel 16. It was only Bethlehem, six miles away from Jerusalem, where David is now. But for David, that distance meant 21 chapters and over 10 years of danger and escapes, treachery, folly, despair, and slander. And yet here he was. And that's why I believe that the older saint who's been through the storms, who's been through the valleys, who's been through the trials, who's had his or her nose bloodied but has seen God's manna in the wilderness, has a capacity to worship that younger saints do not yet have. It's where David is. And hence this praise. I have a student who works as the head of customer service at Cave Hill Cemetery. Of course, everyone that comes there, and he sometimes will give tours, everyone wants to go see Muhammad Ali's grave. The one who said, I'm the greatest. And, and what's interesting is what's on his tombstone. On his tombstone, it reads, our good works are the rent we pay for heaven. And the sad thing, my student says, is how many, the majority of people say, that is a great quote. Our good works are the rent we pay for heaven. But here's the question, how does a theology like that provoke praise? I have never met anyone who praises their landlord for high rent. But in contrast to Ali, David's theology of grace and mercy, steadfast love and faithfulness has him overcome with the Lord God. Notice that word, that name rather, Adonai Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh. That's the exact name that was first used by Abraham in Genesis 15. When God came to Abraham and made a promise, you're going to have a son, you're going to have descendants as multiple as the stars. You're going to have a, a vocation 
of being the means by which God blesses the world. And Abraham responds, Adonai, Yahweh. And I believe that David is intentionally picking that up. Because David now realizes that the covenant made with Abraham, the promises made to Abraham are going to be fulfilled through his descendant, his offspring. And yet notice in verse 19, it's remarkable here, and this was a small thing in your your eyes, O Lord God. David's personal affairs were, were small in comparison to God's greater purpose for the covenant that he is making with David. I love what this 19th century theologian F.W. Krumacher says about this text. He argues that David here sees the glory of his offspring outshining his own. That's why he says just a small thing with regard to my individual benefit. He beheld another son than Solomon, another temple than that built of stones and cedar, another kingdom than the earthly ones on whose throne he sat. He beholds a scepter and a crown of which his own on Mount Zion were only feeble types. Dim and shadowy images. And I believe that's what Jesus was referring to when he says in John 8, 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham recognized the promises that were made to him would be fulfilled in someone far greater than him. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, that's why this praise, this thanksgiving that we see with David can be even more fervent with us. Because what he only saw by, by far-off promise, we, we see by faith union with the fulfillment of that promise. Faith union in the greater son. And what's remarkable, the large majority of us aren't even Jews. We're Gentiles, most of us. Indeed, here in David's prayer, I want you to see this. We can see that this covenant doesn't just impact the the Israelites. Notice in the second part of verse 19. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come... And this is Torah instruction. That's the Hebrew, Torah, law. This is instruction for Adam. That's the Hebrew. This is instruction for mankind. And so we see here this doesn't just impact David's seed, offspring. It doesn't just impact the Israelites. It certainly does that. It impacts the whole world. This name Adam was the name of our first human 
who lived in time and space. It's also the name for the entire human race. And David here recognizes that the promise made to him was just like the promise that had been made to Abraham, where God told Abraham, all the nations will be blessed by your seed. That promise here is that his offspring and the blessing on this offspring would mediate God's blessing and salvation to all the families of the earth. This is Torah for Adam, instruction for mankind. David's dynasty was to be the mechanism for fulfilling the promise made to Abraham, which is the fulfillment of the covenant pledge to redeem all mankind in Genesis 3.15. Listen to these words from Psalm 72. We kind of sang about that this morning. Jesus shall reign. Such an appropriate word for this message. In Psalm 72, Solomon is writing, and he's writing about a day greater than anything he could ever see in his lifetime. He's writing about a Davidic son who's greater than Solomon. And here's what he says. May he have dominion, that is this king, from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, it's going to extend beyond Canaan. It's going to be a reign that extends to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. Desert tribes often being enemies to Israel. Now they're going to bow down to this Davidic king. And his enemies lick the dust. That's Genesis 3.15. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. These are all enemies at the time. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. This promise to Abraham of universal blessing would be fulfilled in this king. And the fact that the enemies of God would lick the dust, clearly alludes to Genesis 3.15. In other words, this covenant made with Abraham and the covenant made with David fulfills Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And it's in beholding this glorious and gracious plan, this remarkable plan, that transforms us from self-sovereigns into servants. So what does it? Verse 19, David refers to himself as the Lord's servant. You ought to underline that word servant in this prayer. You know what you'll find? You'll find it 10 times. That's what grace does. That's what mercy does. It melts us. In fact, we see the second time in verse 20. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Have you ever been over, so overcome by mercy that you, you realize you're, you don't even have a vocabulary that comports with, with what he is, who he is? 
and what he's done for you. What more can I say to you? Because of your promise, verse 21, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Two reasons are stated for God's action. Not one of them has to do with the merits of David. First of all, his promise, verse 21. Secondly, his heart, God's heart. So all of David's house greatness is completely the product of God's grace and mercy. Walt Kaiser tells the story of Louis XIV, who called himself Louis the Great. And when he died, just before his death, he instructed that in the cathedral at Notre Dame, where he would be, the funeral would take place, everything would be darkened except the candle on top of his casket, which dramatized his greatness. Well, the pastor of that castle, that cathedral, his name was Massillon. When he comes up to give the funeral message... First thing he does, he extinguishes that candle and he says, only God is great. This longing to magnify God's greatness, it's the earmark of every mature believer. It's the earmark of many of the great prayers that we read in scripture. For example, after Israel crossed the Red Sea. Moses in Exodus 15 and 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The gods there referring to the some 80 to 120 gods that Egypt had. They were all crushed in those plagues. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or Solomon's prayer at the, at the temple, when the temple was constructed, 1 Kings 8, 23. Oh, Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and on earth beneath. Or when Jehoshaphat and Judah were being attacked by the Ammonites, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. Oh, Lord, God of our fathers, are not you God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is with able, able to withstand you. And the verse we looked at recently in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 10, verse 6, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. There is, you are great, and your name is great in might. Every prayer, every text in Scripture, in some way, sheds light on the greatness, the bigness of our living God. That's why we have to have our Bibles open. If we don't perceive this greatness, we will go on a search for greatness in the creation and it will eat you alive. A.S. Billingsley in a biography of George Whitfield tells the story of a young boy who went to hear Whitfield preach. And then the boy grew deathly sick. And his father was clearly wor worried, and he's standing over the little boy in the bed, and 
The little boy looks up at his dad and he says, Dad, I'm not scared to die. And the dad says, why aren't you scared to die, son? He says, because I want to go to Mr. Whitfield's big God. This was Jeremiah's big God. This was Jehoshaphat's big God. This was Moses' big God. This was Solomon's big God. And this was David's big God. So let me play the heart physician just for a moment. I'm an amateur heart physician. When the song is gone in your heart, when praise is absent, and dullness and boredom are resident, and all the attending negative sinful uh, emotions like frustration and anger and bitterness and discontentment, those are symptoms that God's greatness is eclipsed in your life by sin, by the cares of this world, and maybe by failing to avail yourself to all the divinely given means of grace by which we behold his greatness. And just maybe your lack of commitment to the people of God because God communicates his greatness corporately, which is a vital means. Notice in verse 23, and who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth on whom God went to redeem to be his people. Of course, it wasn't just for their salvation. It would be through that that all the nations will be blessed, right? We recognize that. Making himself a name, doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people. Before whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Notice it was through Israel that God was making himself a name. And in verse 23 and 24, we learn three things about the name of this God. First of all, he's a redeeming God. That's verse 23. He redeemed these people, not by any merit of their own. He redeemed them by sovereign mercy and grace through the blood of the sacrificed lamb. That night of the exodus of the redemption, the death count was the same in every home. The question is, who was dead? It was either the firstborn son of every home or a lamb. God had redeemed them. We also see that God preserves his people. Verse 24. And you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. Establish is used three times when God makes that covenant with David. Which means the establishment of the people of God is grounded by the establishment of the king. As the king goes, so goes the people. <coughs> and then third, we see God is personal. Second part of verse 24, and you, O Lord, became their God. It would take eternity to even skim the surface of what this means for a believer to be able to say, my God. They became your God, or they became your people. You became their God. That is the privilege 
of the covenant people. And now these people know, now we know in redemptive history that the lordship of God will be expressed through the reign of his king forever and ever. And that brings us to David's response of petition. We saw his response of praise. In the second part, we see his response of petition. Verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm before the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever. That's what he's concerned about saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. <clears throat> it appears that he is commanding the Lord God here. It appears that he's irreverent almost, but it's actually the opposite. This is an act of faith. David has heard Nathan's prophecy, and he's taking it at face value. He's simply believing and accepting what the Lord has said, and he's asking God to do what he said he would do. In other words, we learn here how to pray. And the primary way you pray is not focusing on God's hidden will. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. But the primary way we pray is to pray the promises. To pray the promises. This is, I think, a forerunner of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And so this prayer and the Lord's Prayer that would follow that centuries later teach us that the only way to pray like this is to know and to love the promises. And the promise here, notice, when the Lord establishes the kingdom of David, the people will say, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. So it's not about David per se. It's about God's name. So that God's name, notice, would be magnified like a telescope. Magnifies a, a massive planet. But to the naked eye, that planet looks small. To the sinner's eye, God looks small. And then God's people magnify that through the gospel as a telescope. And all of a sudden, what once looked small looks massive. It's brought to scale. And God, David here can't even look at his house. And the promises made to his house without praising the Lord. John Stott tells the story of a, a retirement ceremony he went to for a certain pastor named Paul Gibson. Someone had given Gibson at this ceremony a portrait. They had painted a portrait of Gibson, presented it to him. And, and Gibson gets up and, and he thanks the artist for, for the portrait. And then he said, in the future, people looking at this portrait would not ask, who is this man? They will ask who painted that portrait. And that's what David recognizes. In the future, people are not going to make much of David. They're going to make much of the one who constructed this plan, who made these promises and fulfilled them. Notice in verse 27, as we come to the end of this chapter. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God. And your words are true. 
and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall all the house of your servant be blessed forever. And so because of God's revelation, not because of David's wishful thinking, he has courage to approach the throne room of grace with boldness, with these breathtaking petitions that he would not have otherwise even uttered. And David here, I think, sets out three points that inform his faith. He says, notice, you are God. Your words are true. And you have promised. That's a good way to pray. You are God. Your words are true. You have promised. That should be the fuel for every one of our prayers. And David's prayer here provides... As one writer puts it, not only a description of the happy heart, but a prescription for it. Henry Scogel, when he was 27 years old, wrote the book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. He wrote it at 27. He died at 28. Very short life, but this book had a massive impact on many, countless many. One was Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, so deeply impacted by this book that he passed that book on to one of his close friends, George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist. <coughs> Whitfield was so deeply impacted by the book. Listen to what he says about that book. I laid aside... All trifling conversation. I put aside all trifling books. And from that moment, God has been carrying on his blessed work in my soul. Such was the impact of that book. The life of God in the soul of man. And about 30 pages into the book, Skogel makes a statement that has had such a deep impact on many, including John Piper. It was behind Piper's book, The Pleasures of God. This one sentence. I've heard Piper say, books don't change people, sentences do. This is one of those sentences. The worth and the excellence of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and the excellence of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. I think Skogel is referring here to the health of a soul. Every soul is worthy in the sense that it's made in the image of God. But he, here he's referring to the health of a soul. A soul's health is measured by what it treasures most. David's prayer here reflects a healthy soul. A very healthy soul. This is a portrait not of a radical, but a normal response to the mercies of God. This is a normal response. A normal response to a soul 
that treasures what should be treasured above all things. David Foster Wallace, he was right. Worship is part of our DNA. It's who we are. We, we worship our way through every day of our lives, every encounter, every conversation, every interaction with your spouse is an act of worship and with your children and with your neighbors and your coworkers. And I think King David would agree that the only way to overcome false worship, which in Wallace's words, will ultimately eat you alive, is by worship of him who is faithful and true, who expresses his rule through his Davidic king. Of course, that doesn't just happen by following David's example. If you do that, in just a few chapters, you'll shipwreck. No, it happens by beholding, beholding the one that he ponders by the promises made to him. A son who would be the consummate worshiper. As we saw in Hebrews 1 last week, the faithful son to the father. Hebrews 1, 5. Who in Hebrews 2, verse 12, listen, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's the faithful son, the consummate worshiper. He worships as the son of God, the faithful king as our substitute. Everything he did in his earthly life was as our substitute. He worships for you as a believer and your salvation for your salvation, fulfilling all worship righteousness. So that when the Father looks at us and he looks at our puny worship or our false worship, he sees the perfect worship, worship righteousness of the Son of David in whom he is well pleased. And what's remarkable in the greatest irony in history the only righteous worshiper in the history of the world was cursed upon a cross to take the wrath for false worshipers like us. He propitiated God's wrath on false worship and puny worship. The false worship that eats us alive and eats up our marriages, and eats up our families, and eats up every relationship that we have. Isn't he great? Isn't he good? He came not just to redeem us in our false worship. He came to redeem us from it. And he's good at what he does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For your mercy and grace expressed in the King, Son of God, who came for us in our salvation. Rescue our all, Lord, today. Restore our worship back to the rightful place, to the triune God, to the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit.
And for those that perhaps have never trusted Christ alone for salvation, may today, today be the day where they confess their sin of false worship and recognize that false worship deserves judgment. But the Son of God took that judgment. And Lord, I pray today they would repent of their sins and trust in this King, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.